Hi, my name is Wendy Weber. And my name is BJ Neal. Welcome to Nobody Chooses Homelessness. A podcast dedicated to changing the cultural narratives about homelessness and shedding light on how we can mobilize to be a part of the solution. In this podcast, we'll talk to everyday people, experts, entrepreneurs, and activists who are helping their unhoused neighbors find their way home again. We work for City Relief, a nonprofit organization dedicated to serving people facing extreme poverty and homelessness. City Relief shows up weekly as a mobile outreach offering people free meals, supplies, and connection to resources for housing, employment, and health care. More importantly, we offer people friendship, community, and belonging. We both have years of experience working systematically and on the ground to end homelessness. We believe that in order to end homelessness, it's going to take a holistic approach with people from all walks of life helping their neighbors in need. Today, we dive into part two of our episode with Deborah Berkman. Deborah Berkman is currently a coordinating attorney with the New York Legal Assistance Group's Public Benefits Unit and founded NILAD's Shelter Advocacy Initiative, providing representation to people experiencing homelessness. Deborah advocates for single adults and families to receive habitable emergency shelter and housing subsidies so that they may transition to permanent housing. She also represents these and other low-income clients in accessing public benefits. Formerly, Deborah worked in NILAG's Special Litigation Unit, bringing class action and other impact litigation based on systemic denials of rights or benefits. Deborah is also employed as an adjunct clinical professor at Brooklyn Law School, teaching classes relating to poverty, public interest, and civil rights law. Prior to these positions, Deborah spent her career fighting on behalf of the disenfranchised at the New York Civil Liberties Union, the Sylvia Rivera Law Project, and in private practice. Deborah received her undergraduate degree from the University of Wisconsin at Madison and her JD from Fordham School of Law. How many of your clients do you believe actually are experiencing that kind of trauma that you're talking about? Because you're talking about this trauma that they're experiencing that's causing them not to want to even go to a shelter. How, how often does that yeah. happen with your clients? Is it okay if I correct your language and cannot say that they don't want to go to a shelter, yeah. but they cannot go to a shelter? Their trauma is essentially what I would call almost a disability that prevents them from being accessed, accessing shelter. So what kind of trauma are you talking about? So to answer your question, I would say that 99.9% of my single adult clients have had some sort of traumatic experience that is either being physically or sexually assaulted in shelter. And if I had a, to guess, I would say that's probably 75% of my single adult clients who end up in street homelessness. Wow. And then the other 25% or 24.9% have witnessed some sort of sexual or otherwise physical assault. And for fear of it, and, cannot go back. And they cannot go back. Wow. And so, and what it is, is when you have a system set up like the congregate shelter system, when there are 50 unrelated people in a room, it, it, it's impossible to keep the peace. It's just, or it, it appears impossible wow. to keep the peace. So the clients who are sleeping outside, they don't want to sleep outside. They are not service resistant they have an anxiety reaction that prevents them from walking into that space. 
And they believe, and I actually agree with them, that it is safer for them to be outside. Mm-hmm. And so, and that is why that they are outside. Now, another, can I just tell you a, a couple of other reasons why people are staying outside? Yeah. So we have a lot of clients who can't be in congregate shelter. Mm-hmm. But we also have the problem of the city not allowing clients to switch shelters if something traumatic has happened to them. Mm-hmm. So it is very difficult for clients to switch their shelter if they've had a bad experience at a shelter. And while something called the safety transfer does exist, you really need a lawyer or an advocate to make that happen. Wow. So we have clients at City Relief who desperately want to come inside Absolutely. and they want to have a place to sleep and they want to go to work the next day and they can stay in a congregate shelter, but they just can't stay in the congregate shelter where they were assaulted. <laughs> and until they find me, they've been entirely unsuccessful in getting a transfer to another shelter. So they're forced to sleep outside. Okay, pause for one second, just because I want to make sure that what you just said is, is being fully understood because that is crazy. So you're saying that somebody experiences trauma, whether it was a sexual assault, whether it was just, not even just, but a physical assault, or whether they witnessed something. However it was, someone experiences trauma in their shelter, and on the basis of that trauma, they're like, they, they would like to be transferred to a different one. And without advocacy or a lawyer, the answer's probably gonna be no. That's correct. Wow. Okay. So, and Department of Homeless Services has the position that clients can't pick their shelters. Wow. And from an administrative perspective, I have to say that it would be a tremendous administrative burden to have clients moving from shelter to shelter. But on a human perspective, it, this policy is preventing people from sleeping inside. And I do know that the city is very anxious to have people come inside. That, that, that's a stated policy of the Adams administration. They want people to come inside. But if you want people to come inside, then you need to provide spaces that they can come into. To me, it's like you're saying to people who use a wheelchair for ambulation, you need to, to go to a walk-up. Like the clients can't access it. Like that person would not be able to access that accommodation. There is no access. So when you're talking about needing advocacy or a lawyer, we're talking about thousands of people who are outside. What is the availability of lawyers who will advocate for clients like this? This holiday season, we've set a tremendous goal of reaching 15,000 people in the New York and New Jersey area who are experiencing homelessness and extreme poverty. For $20, you can sponsor one person and give them access to a hot meal, supplies, and time with our life care counselors. To give now, click the link in the description of this podcast. Not enough. And I also want to say that not everyone needs the same type of advocacy. Sure. I, I do think a lot of people who are experiencing street homelessness are more successful when they come inside to a low barrier shelter with smaller rooms. <laughs> so presumably there's contracted outreach that is supposed to help people access safe havens and smaller rooms. But there are so many fewer of those placements than there are people sleeping outside that in order to get any particular client into one, we have to do a lot of advocacy. And how many lawyers are there out there? I mean, I only a handful of lawyers and advocates. 
Although I will say that the clients are their own advocates. And I mean, my clients have taught me so much about the system and how so much about how to handle the system, yeah. get through the system. So I, I, I don't want to discount them advocating for themselves. Yeah. But yeah, there's very few. I, there's only a handful of, of homeless rights advocates in the city, if that. Okay. Wow. So another barrier to people coming inside, and I will say that Gary Jenkins, Gary Jenkins said on in testimony before city council that this practice had ended. But what I'm hearing from my clients on the street and what I'm hearing from actual outreach workers is that this, pra- this practice is still going, is that if a client in a single adult shelter will be placed in a shelter and then they will be assigned to that shelter for 365 days after the first, the day they are assigned there or the last day they go into sleep there, whichever is later. So they are assigned for a full year at least to that shelter, okay. even if they never go back there. So let's just say I'm Deb. I I go in, I, you know, I go through the intake process and I am assigned to to a shelter and I go in there the first day and I something super scary happens the first day and I'm, I never go back. For 364 more days, yeah. I am purportedly assigned to that shelter. So if I run into outreach, what a lot of outreach workers do is that they they run the name through the system and they see someone has an assigned DHS shelter and outreach workers say that they are instructed to just drop that person off at their assigned shelter. Now, the problem is not that the clients don't know where their assigned shelter is. They know where their assigned shelter is. They can get to their assigned shelter. They're super wily. They're staying alive and they live outside. The problem is, is that they can't stay in that shelter. So at that point, a lot of people have reported to me that outreach will not will not help them. And outreach, I have spoken to outreach workers themselves who have told me the same thing. So clients don't want to go back to their assigned shelter ever because they know that they will be basically prohibited from getting a safe haven or a stabilization placement if they go back in there for 365 days after the last time they go back in there. Because if if outreach meets a client and they're not in the shelter system, they have a greater likelihood of getting a safe haven or a stabilization placement, which is generally a low barrier shelter with fewer rooms, with fewer people per room. And then they also have single rooms for people who need them and without a curfew system. And a lot of our clients lose their bed because they work in the evenings and they lose their bed and they don't get back in time. They physically can't return by the curfew. They can't return by the curfew. But they're holding a job, but that that makes them ineligible to stay at the shelter. Yes. A lot of my clients, I have to say, and I didn't know this was going to be the case, but a lot of my clients work at Uber Eats and they actually, and it's an evening job. Yeah. Yeah. And they can't get back to shelter in time. And then I also have clients who just can't get back to shelter in time and they lose their bed. And so in a safe haven and stabilization placement, you don't lose your bed. So in order to get a safe haven or stabilization placement, and this isn't a written rule, but according to outreach workers and according to my clients' experiences, Clients can't have entered their assigned shelter for at least a year, and they can't be on any shelter's roll call. So what I would say is that there are a lot of policies, and, you know, I could go on and on. The the intake process is extremely invasive, and uh, people's needs aren't accommodated while they're going through the intake process. And there are other issues, and I could talk about them, but I know we don't have all day. But I would want to say that the reason that there are so many people sleeping outside right now is because of the policies of the city. And there are so many policies of the city that are preventing people from accessing shelter. And I'm sure that some of that has to do with money. 
But some of it doesn't seem to make any sense. Yeah. And if the city truly wants people to come off the street, the city needs to give them a place to go. Yeah. Just think about it as asking someone to do what they literally can't do and then labeling them resistant. Exactly. We didn't even give them a chance to do it. Absolutely. And you have contacts and in the city and you have you have more access to those contacts. And I know that you advocate and you try to advocate for change on that level. Is that true? Sure. I actually, so, you know, I'm very lucky that I have my impact litigation background and I worked in impact litigation and class action and civil rights litigation for years. Just real quick, before you continue, impact litigation, give us a little bit, what is, what is, do you mean when you're saying impact litigation? So impact litigation refers to trying to change a policy or procedure that affects many people, as opposed to litigation that would only affect the parties of the litigation. So if I, if I sue the government and I say, you know, your practice of X caused BJ to get hurt, and you need to change that practice, that practice doesn't only affect BJ. Right. It affects a lot of people. Absolutely. So that's what we call impact litigation, where it has an impact on a large group of people, and we're seeking to change a practice policy, law, or regulation. This podcast is sponsored by City Relief. We are a nonprofit dedicated to connecting people who are experiencing homelessness and poverty to food, clothing, and vital resources they need to survive. We show up week after week on New York City and New Jersey streets, regardless of the weather, providing meals and community to those who feel forgotten. We can only do this because of the generosity of everyday people like you who want to see a world where our homeless neighbors are cared for. To find out how you can give and make a real impact on homelessness, click the link in the description of this episode. So because I do have that that past, I'm really able to sort of marry my two my two loves, which is individual advocacy and systemic advocacy. And so we bring class action lawsuits we and to try to change policies and practices that we think are illegal. But there are a lot of these practices that are deeply inhumane, but they're not illegal. They're just deeply inhumane and they cause people to have to sleep outside. Wow. And for those, policy is what we do. So what do we do? So we, we advocate to to city council and to state government and to city government and to the mayor's office. And, you know, we we try to talk to them and we write them letters and we try to explain to them why certain policies are not only bad for for our clients, but are also bad for the city or the state as a whole. Mm-hmm. As a whole, I, I think that the mayor, the mayor, I, I assume both wants to help people sleeping on the street and ha- help the entire city because our city is better. We're a stronger city when we don't, force people to sleep outside, mm-hmm. right? So certain policies that may briefly remove people from sleeping on the street are not policies that are going to work in the long run. Therefore, they won't be good for the city or those people in the long run. Okay, this is great. So while we're talking about the city, while we're here, these days, right, for affordable housing op- options are becoming just less and less available. So with that said, what would you say would be the city's responsibility in the future like so where does the city like come in with a lot of this what do you think their their future responsibilities are going to be if they're going to 
because it's not like homelessness is becoming less of a problem, right, in our country. Like COVID, I don't know what the actual like ratios or percentages are in, with regard to the increase of homelessness because of COVID-19, but I know it was drastic. It, it, it's complicated, and I think it's going to be hard to figure out. But in New York, because there was an eviction moratorium for so long, I think that we don't yet know what what the numbers are going to be because people have just started being evicted again. Mm-hmm. So I, we're going to see a huge rise after people start being evicted. Wow. Yeah. But that hasn't happened yet. And, you know, cases are still going. And when you say eviction moratorium, you mean that for a time, because of COVID-19, people were not being evicted from their homes and that has been lifted and now people are starting to get evicted that couldn't pay their rent during COVID-19. Okay. Yes. Wow. So So there's about to be a huge increase. Right. A a tidal wave is coming. Yeah. Now, to give the city and the state the credit that they deserve, they have made a lot of rental assistance payments available to people who suffered during covid so that the number would not be as high as it would have otherwise been. Yes. But so affordable housing. So, of course, I mean, NYCHA housing should be greatly, greatly expanded and other affordable housing should be greatly, greatly expanded. And that should be the number one priority of the city. Yes. But honestly, getting people through shelter to get to the housing is going to also be very important. Yeah, so, 100%. Can, right. So so really using shelter, as I believe it was intended, as a short pit stop in order to, in order to sort of find appropriate housing, not as a place to languish for years and years. Yeah. So the city, so I, I think it's sort of like a double obligation. First, the obligation to create the affordable housing. 100%. And then the, the obligation to make sure people can get into the affordable housing. Yes. Because creating it and then leaving it empty. There's also, and I, you know, we could do an entire episode on this, and but you might fall asleep, is a lot of administrative burden in using the, the vouchers or the subsidies to actually access housing. Oh, yes. And I know it's a priority of the Adams administration to sort of clean up that, that administrative process. And I, I would really look forward to seeing that happen because to me, I have clients who have accessibility to vouchers, but can't find a landlord who would take the voucher or can't find an apartment or have found an apartment, but lose the apartment because it took HRA so long to get the paperwork together and to get the inspection done. And, you know, so that's incredibly frustrating for the clients as well. And for me as a homeless rights advocate, because I want to see my clients in permanent housing. Yeah. That's, you know, the goal for every single family in shelter. So. Deb, I am sitting here completely overwhelmed by all of the things, even though I have a background in working and with organizations who are working with people experiencing homelessness. I'm completely overwhelmed by all of this complex issues that you're bringing to me. I'm also completely grateful that there are people like you who are bringing class action lawsuits to the city to actually try and make an impact in changing policies. And then finally, I'm feeling kind of the universal what do I do? And you mentioned the reach out to your council person. So does that really make a difference, A? And B, what else What else can we do? So can I just even take us back a step? I yeah. think the most important thing to do is to get to know your neighbors. 
And to get to know your neighbors, you need to interact with them. Mm -hmm. And a really great way to do that is to volunteer at an organization like City Relief or another organization where you interact with people and you you meet them and you learn about them and you understand that. And people who are experiencing homelessness, they're not something other than you. They, they're all of us. They're people who happen to be in this particular situation. So that, I think, just creating awareness and acceptance is is really important. And I think that that would go a long way politically. For instance, Department of Homeless Services is trying to build new shelters and is trying to build new safe havens. And there's a lot of what's called nimbyism going on in New York City right now, which is not in my backyard. So people don't want shelters in their neighborhoods. Yes. And people experiencing homelessness are part of our city. They are our neighbors and they are allowed to be in our neighborhoods. And I think that if a lot of the people who were objected so vociferously to having shelters in their neighborhood actually met our clients, they would feel very differently after meeting them and they wouldn't be so scared. Mm -hmm. So that's great. So, but I also think that everybody should really just be aware of what's going on with their local council person. People live in New York City. Our city council people, they work for us. And they're supposed to do what we want them to do for our district. And so, I mean, I talk to my local council person all the time, you know, and I talk to her about a lot of things. I talk to her about who the new principal of my daughter's school is going to be. And I talk to her about how we can accommodate people experiencing homelessness who are living within our catchment. And I have expressed to her many times, bring shelters into this neighborhood. It's okay. Like we we have room for shelters. And I think that all of you should do the same. Get out there and express to your local politicians that we as New Yorkers want to help people who have to be, who are right now living outside. Yeah. And even just concisely breaking down what you just said, your first suggestion was that somebody should just actually get involved. Like volunteer with City Relief, volunteer with an organization that's out there doing the work so that you can get eye level, so that you can have the opportunity to actually touch base with someone that's in these situations that is struggling with homelessness and experiencing it, right? So that as those stigmas break down, you can take those next bigger steps, right, of actually figuring out who your council member is and trying to figure out what it looks like to have a conversation and and to actually advocate for people that are experiencing these problems. If you live in New York or New Jersey or technically anywhere and you'd like to volunteer with us, click on the link in the description of this episode. I have to say, I have been a New Yorker my entire life, and I think New Yorkers are such kind and welcoming people and smart. And I think that if if everyone understood what was really happening, the city government would have a completely different attitude towards our homeless neighbors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love it. I yeah. love it. So one question we want to ask every single one of our guests, um, and this relates to what you're talking about in terms of, yes, bring a shelter to our community. There's such a wide stereotype of negativity that causes people to say, well, no, we don't want a shelter in our community. So there's many stereotypes, but if you could choose one, if you could challenge one thought that people have around homelessness and challenge them to think differently or work to think differently about that, what would it be? Don't assume that someone who's sleeping outside is dangerous. Most likely they're just low income without a place to sleep. Fantastic. That was, yeah, absolutely. Very succinct. Mm -hmm. I love it. 
I love it. I think that your work is groundbreaking for many reasons, but I think it's almost like for someone that doesn't believe that the problems are systemic or doesn't know, you're almost like the Sasquatch in a way, because you're basically like this thing that they're like, oh, I don't believe that exists. And then you're like, hello. I'm like, exactly. Like, you just kind of show up. Could have been a and, different example, it, but yes, I yeah, Sasquatch that works. Yes, listen, I'm going with it because you're kind of- I'm taking it as a compliment. <laughs> it is. It is a compliment because to the problem of homelessness and to this city, you are a beacon in a lot of ways. You are making known this thing that so many people, I've met so many people from all over the country that legitimately say that they don't believe that systemic issues exist, like at all. So to them, it is this mythical figure, like to talk about it. And you're here having this conversation and it's literally like, wait, okay, it's not a myth. It's not just something that like, people tell stories about or people try to make it up and, and try to like act like the evidence is there for it. No, this is legitimate systemic problems that we have to solve. And I thank you so much for the fact that you are out here doing the work, you and NILAG and, you know, the work that you guys do as an organization. You guys are out here actually doing the work to solve these systemic issues. Thank you so much for your time. Mm -hmm. For your yeah, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for being Absolutely. here. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hey, you. Yes, you, listener. Have you ever been walking down the street and someone who appeared unhoused approached you and asked for money? Or do you ever walk to the train in the morning and see someone holding a sign asking for help? What do you do? Well, don't worry. We are here to help. Click the link in the description of this episode for a quick easy to use guide packed with helpful tips for how to engage with your neighbors experiencing homelessness.